Jazz. All right. Well, welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 134. Mike is out of the grave. He's he's walking around, heavily medicated, but ready to go, right? Your voice is in great fettle. It is. All right. There you go. And I'm Pat. Mine's just as whiny as ever. I'm much better than I am. I'm much better than the last. Yeah, he's perky. He's he's active. Yes. He's ready to go. And I had three caffeinated drinks today, so look out, people. Hold on to your butts. Oh dear. So today we're going to do a podcast devoted to some review copies of music that we got from Two for the Show Media. They promote a lot of jazz artists and uh, have been sending some review copies our way. So these were not paid for by us. They were supplied by a third party, just for a full disclosure there. And these are all releases from late 2017 or early 2018. So they're very contemporary. The four artists and albums, Srinks Effect, I believe is how you say it. It's S-Y-R-I-N-X, Srinks, like Sphinx, but with a Y. And their album's called A Sky You Can Strike a Match On. Trombonist Elliot Mason's Before, Now, and After. Guitar player Ryan Mars. And he says that's the way you pronounce his name is Mar, but it's spelled M-E-A-G-H-E-R. His album called Lost Days. And Aaron Aranita and the Brent Fisher Orchestra, Segunda Vista. Now, I know that Mike's going to correct me on, on this pronunciation, but... No, it's good. Well done. Well done. Joyce is shutting her office door, so she doesn't have to learn about jazz tonight. She, she hates having to learn about jazz. Poor thing. <laughs> so anyway, uh, these four records we just kind of picked out of the pile of things he sent and thought we'd talk about them. I give artists that, for me at least, I don't know that any of these names other than Brent Fisher rang a bell because his father, Claire, was a band leader I'd heard of. I don't think that any of these artists were ones I was familiar with before getting these recordings. Is, is, is that the case for you? The only one that I'm even mildly familiar with, and it's not so much him, Elliot Mason has been part of Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra for a while. And so he is not, um, I don't think, I don't know how long, last time I saw them, he wasn't part of the band. He's replaced somebody or other in the band since but he's part of that you know Wynton Marsalis a set and it has a handful of regulars who I do it's still current regulars who I've heard of but that's how I know of him is that he's part of that but I before this I wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup in terms of his face or or his playing or anything like that yeah and I'm in absolutely the same boat yeah there are a couple famous uh, jazz musicians guesting on this project but yeah I did not that name did not ring a bell so, yeah, this is uh, and the, the problem that jazz fans face and the jazz musicians face is there are a lot of excellent musicians out there and it's hard keeping track of all of them. And I still think to some degree, I, I, I as a fan and kind of a hobbyist, though I'm not a professional, name recognition matters. I mean, that's where you start. It's kind of hard to know, am I going to devote time or ears to a recording by someone I've never heard of? Not that I never do it. I try to do it frequently. But at that point, you're just kind of left then. It's a complete crapshoot because if you don't know them, you know, you don't know, is is this the money or maybe just the time, you know, whatever streaming that I wanted to vote when there's another 50 names out there I don't know. How do I know where to begin? 
So right. in a sense, uh, this is what Two for the Show Media is trying to do is promote at least some of these artists and get them into the hands of people and encourage them to listen and respond to the music just as a way of starting the conversation because, you know, the hope is they'll become names that then later you trace to other new, younger musicians. Any preferences here? I, one thing I like about this is that two of the four albums feature trombonists, and that is yeah. an unusual percentage uh, in this modern jazz world. Any place you'd like to begin? We could start with the trombone guys if you want. And gals, yeah, okay. Uh, sorry, uh, why did I? Yes, you're right. Sorry, confused there. Uh, we could start with trombone, or actually, let's um, let's start. Let's go in a different order. Can I? Can I set the order? You sure may. I want to finish with Aaron Aranita and Syrinx Effect. Okay. Uh, and then you can do the other two in any order you like. All right. <clears throat> How about them? Apples? Sounds fine. So uh, just at random, let's begin with Ryan Mars. 2017 album Lost Days uh, came out in Fresh Sounds New Talent One thing I noticed about this album, I don't know if it caught your ears or not, and then I just finally tracked down the liner notes to it that he has on his website under, oddly enough, news. There are contrafacts on this album, in other words, songs based on chord changes from earlier songs. I don't know if any of those caught your ears. I'm not real attuned to that, but a couple just kind of slapped me in the face, and it was nice to see confirmation. Uh, Any of these sound familiar to you at all? Say everything you just said again. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't understand any All of right. it. Said that again. I shouldn't have been backward masking. I do that sometimes. So anyway, a couple of the songs here that I caught, and it turned out two others, are Contrafacts, which is a fancy name for a song based on the harmonic structure of an earlier song. Thelonious Monk, for instance, writes Contrafacts. His Bright Mississippi is a new melody put on top of. Sweet Georgia Brown, sorry. So it's like, uh, it's like, uh, is isn't I Got Rhythm like a song that gets that, that the, ch- the chord changes for that or something get recycled a lot? Right, yeah. Monk has a couple different songs that are based on the I Got Rhythm changes. So Wikipedia has a useful list of jazz contrafacts. So yeah, Monk's 52nd Street theme is based on I Got Rhythm. Little Rudy Tootie is also based on I Got Rhythm. And a rhythming is also based on I Got Rhythm all by Monk. So Monk is one of the geniuses at this and that his melodies are so distinctive, they kind of tend to imprint on you and you don't tend to think about the source material that much. In this case, a couple songs on Mars' album kind of leapt out at me. For instance, Absurdly Delinquent sounds a lot like the Bill Evans tune very early and you kind of see the punning relationship there. Mm-hmm. And then... um Inner Urge, Joe Henderson's tune, which is a tune I hadn't thought of for a long time, provides the chord changes for the song just called Mar. (laughs) ¶¶ 
anyway, uh, and then he there's a couple others that I had not caught. South Slope is based on Isfahan, the Ellington right. Ballad. And How Deep is the Ocean inspired Deep Ocean Hall. And these are all, if you look up www.ryanmar.com under news, he, he has his uh, notes on these the compositions and talks about the fact these are contrafacts. So I guess if nothing else, this is a guy that's kind of plugging into jazz tradition. He's playing with Bill McHenry, who's a pretty well-known saxophone player, uh, at least somebody I had heard of, George Colligan on keys, Chris Higgins on bass, and Mark Ferber on drums. So what do you think of this uh, guitar album by, again, Marr, but spelled M-E-A-G-H-E-R? Well, there's a reason why I wanted to start with Marr and Elliot Mason, um, which is that um, of the four that we're looking at or listening to today, um, first first things first, all of them are good. and the, co- the playing is good, blah, blah, blah. No, no complaints about the playing. I did not connect well to this or to Elliot Mason's disc. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. There's nothing wrong with this. It's enjoyable. But to me, it didn't have melodies that were particularly memorable, that didn't imprint. And maybe I just haven't sat down long enough with it. I've gotten through the album three or four times, and it's just not its not made a big impression on me. What did you think of the keyboards here? You know, that I, 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 I don't think I thought about the keyboards here. And I, I think that for this, I actually like the Mason album a lot. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, yeah, here, I think this was for me the most slippery of the records. And uh, I listened more to McHenry and Marr, but I, I, I got to admit, yeah, didn't think much about the keyboards, for better or for worse. I just kept wondering why... So, so I don't know. Maybe this is just me trying to get a purchase on this or whatever. I liked the guitar playing and I liked McHenry's uh, saxophone, but I kept wondering why the keyboards were electric and why it was a piano. Not that that's a bad thing, but with the texture of the electric guitar, I don't know. I, I kind of, I didn't like the electric keyboards here in this context as much. It's not quite roller rink, you know. That's our favorite way to, you know, piss on electronic keyboards. I mean the playing's great. I'm not I'm not I'm not faulting the keyboard player. What I'm saying is the sound didn't produce something that stood out for me. I just had a hard time grappling with this. I did not get into it very much. As I said, the playing is fine. I don't dislike it, but I mean I mean I'm boggled if I can pick a tune out of here. And that's, you know, listening to some of the cuts seven or eight times. Uh, I think the fewest number of times I listened to any of the cuts was three. I'm, it's just not registering for me, and I, you know, I feel bad about that because you know these are new, these are young musicians, these are new albums, you know, and I'd like nothing better than to say, this cut really grabbed my attention or this blew me away, but but nothing quite did that for me. Maybe the the Bayou Brasileira because the guitar playing is pretty distinctive on that, and it's more front and center in some ways, and the organ is really far back. <laughs> I don't know. I just had a hard time with this. And I, like I said, it's, I feel kind of guilty because, like I said, I want to just say, ah, you know, but it's, it doesn't affect me that way. Did you there cuts on here that you really like? Or well, uh, are there distinctive things about the playing from some of the players that really jumped out at you? You know, I, I think one way of trying to put my finger on this effect, which it kind of had on me too, is audiophiles have to talk about transients, which is, you know, the envelope of a note striking it, beginning it, the sustain of it, the end of it. And 
sometimes some players are extremely sharp. You know, when the note begins, it's a real event and it's striking, literally and figuratively, and you're you know kind of alerted by it. Thelonious Monk, for instance, when he hits a piano key, you fucking well know he hit it. I think that Ryan, to some degree, is, is a little bit softened and round, rounded. It's not quite the Kurt Rosenwinkel sound, where there really is mm. almost no sense of, of a string being plucked. But I, I think in terms of just the production of sound, it doesn't tend. It tends to be very smooth and sinuous, and it doesn't draw attention to itself. And I think, given that that's his style of playing, having the more rounded transients of an electric keyboard instead of a piano maybe multiply that effect of kind of vagueness of kind of a mellowness that's very pleasant but it's not ear catching and so yeah that may be one way of talking about the issue here is that the the way this album this the sounds being made are not such that kind of snap you to attention I, i think one of the thing with contrafacts is is that the question always is, have you created something that's interesting enough to stand on its own? It's not quite when you shoot at a king, don't miss. I mean, aesthetic, no one is necessarily thinking of love for sale exclusively. I mean, it's got a kind of bizarre, that that George Russell tune, outline to it, a kind of frantic nature that, that it's got its own identity. You remember the harmonic underpinning, but it, it's its own thing. Here, you know, when he was playing Mar, I just thought of inner urge in fact i then played that album by joe henderson which i had heard for a while and said man that side a is motherfucking good side a of an album um and then mm. i listened to some more joe henderson because it's been a while and enjoyed myself thoroughly and the same with uh absurdly delinquent i mean all i could do is think of very early it didn't have its own identity mm. for me aside from the harmonies and i really have to kind of be slapped on the ass to be alerted to a contrafact it's got to be pretty it's easy to sneak one by me, I guess is my point. And those, I'm like, is this very early? Is that the tune? Is that, I don't think he's covering the tune, but it's, it is, it is it, you know, it was that kind of thing rather than, wow, this, this new song has a familiarity to it. So, I mean, one issue may be just instead of doing those, maybe just play the tunes, you know, just play the well-known tunes and different time signatures is great. I think that I like to hear, again, notes just more vividly struck. I think another thing that struck me about this record is there's kind of, from tune to tune, they're all well done, but they don't build an identity for the album. I mean, like the first tune there, I kind of thought of Charlie Hunter, if you remember him at all, the the guitar player with that kind of funk group, and he he plays, he can play bass at the same time he plays. He's got like five or six strings seven or eight string guitar. I, he's got a lot of strings on his guitar. I think more than the usual, or maybe he's just got a lot of fingers. I don't know. But it, it had that kind of feeling to it. I thought, is this going to be a funk album? But then there was, you know, kind of a boss tune, and there was this this Bill Evans cover, and I didn't quite get an emotional center from it. I mean, obviously you can play songs in different styles. No one wants to hear eight funk tunes in a row. But it was more like he was experimenting in the styles than bringing his own thumbprint to them, if that makes any sense. He was showing he could do them rather than showing what he could do to them, I guess, is a way of right. putting it. So, I, yeah, I had the same impression. I like it. I mean, I, I don't listen to this album and think, this is a bad player. This is not a good album. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. But for me, it was it was the hardest to pin down. It had the vaguest identity of the four. Yeah, I you know I also I want to go back and amend something or at least uh, the complaint that I'm making about the electric keyboards that doesn't hold for all the songs. So about half the songs here actually have piano, and I I kind of like them better actually. Okay. South Slope 
heart whole. There's a little more tension. It feels like there's a little more tension between the constituent members of the group when the piano is, when we have piano instead of keyboards. And I, I do like those numbers, you know, marginally better. Just, this didn't register much for me. It's it's good. I like it, but I'm not. You know, I'd, I'd be willing to hear another album by this guy, and I'm willing certainly to give this more of a chance and try and you know engage with it a little bit more. But it didn't jump up and grab me, and that's I guess that's one of the things we probably should be talking about today. Is you know with with new jazz, is it is there something there that's going to reach out and and grab you um, and make you want to come back and. For me, this this didn't do that. Not bad. It's enjoyable, but there's nothing here that makes me say I have to put an asterisk next to this group and make sure I hear whatever they do from now on. If I have a chance to hear what they do, uh, I'll take it and I'll listen to it. But this just didn't grab me. It's good, but not you know memorable, at least for me. Right, and you know there are a lot of ways that you can give a record an identity. It could be repertoire which I'm kind of surprised, to be honest. I'm still waiting for the such-and-such quartet plays the music of Duran Duran. Because if you could pull it (laughs) off, if you could make that good jazz, no one, at least of my age, would forget it. Now, obviously, it could go wrong in a thousand ways. That's probably not the best group of the world. But just something where you're like, you're kind of taking a stand and saying, okay, I lived through the 80s, and I'm not ashamed of it. Or medieval plane chant. I, I don't care what, you know, that, it could be repertoire. Just pretty much anything other than what everybody's already played out of the real book. Uh, it could be that it's your personality on your instrument, that you just have a very distinctive fingerprint. And that is tough right. to do. Rosenwinkel is one of these guys that his sound alone is a signature. And that, you know, brings us back to that yeah. generation or one or two behind him with Schofield and Metheny and Frizzell, where those guys instantly identifiable from a few notes. And, you know, that's another way you can do it. You could have maybe more interesting artwork, you know, that's not just so impersonal and, you know, pretty. That I, I, I do think sometimes I, I'm going to write, I've threatened this before, an article about superficiality and how important it is in music. And <laughs> some of it is a signal. It's like, okay, well, if you're just trying to soothe me, you know, and, and I think another way is, are you somebody that can create a narrative or a mood or a place in a 40 to 60 minutes span of time? And yet Ryan, in, on this effort, he's not showing that he's he's not an ECM floater. No, not at all. Not a funkmeister. He's not a burner. Nope. Yeah, he's not, you know, nope. a million notes a second. He's not a shredder fusion guy. He's not an arranger like, you know, when we did that Thelonious Monk project by Mr. Zoller, where, right. you know, I'd say a third of those tunes, he's saying, look, here's a way of spinning a very well-known uh, Monk standard a little differently. You may not have heard it with this particular framework, and especially in a simple jazz quartet. So, I, yeah, you're looking for something there. What's, you know, he's not an note bender. He's not somebody that you feel is crying through the instrument. So, yeah, I'm still looking for, I mean, he's good. I, I enjoy it. And, and I think it's it's a very pleasant record. And just to put it on and listen to it is fine. 
but yeah. they put it back in the rotation and say, I'm going to now put this on yet again, instead of listening to, Oh my God, I haven't listened to my Joe Henderson stuff for a while. You know, that, that's, that was the result of that. I listened to Bill Evans and Joe Henderson. You know, it's like, man, Joe Henderson's so fucking good, which is another problem young jazz musicians face is that we have this hundred year history now that we can dip into and, you, you can't compete with Ghost. You've got to play what you're feeling right now. I mean, no one's asking you to be better than or like so-and-so or so-and-so who's dead and gone and left this amazing legacy. But there is that sense of, you know, as we near the grave, our limited time. And, you know, what, what are we going to queue up? You know, what, do we want to do something we know and we love or, or are we going to try something new? And I'm always willing to try something new. But to go back to it, yeah, then you've got to get a commitment. So anyway, yeah, again, I, I, I'm absolutely on board with you. None of these albums are bad. All of them are good. Right. I mean, really, the problem yes. with jazz is just there is so much good jazz out there. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Not only almost everything that's been recorded before that you can stream or find in print, but just hundreds of new records every month. So it's, you know, what is going to kind of stand out. Okay, so uh, Elliot Mason's album, it's got a very forgettable title. I wouldn't have called it this. <laughs> and I don't know, have you seen the, the, the artwork? The inner pictures are great. I'd say the cover of this is an abomination. I hope neither he nor his wife or nor a close friend put it together. I don't like it. <laughs> it scares me. Before Now and After from 2018, I'm not sure three pictures of your face against a red background is what you want, unless you're trying to scare the buyer, of course, anymore. That's... It's mood, but for an old old guy like me, a superficial bastard, I like something different. Go over the uh, go over the personnel, please. Elliot Mason on trombone, of course. Why don't you do that? You've you've probably got the actual the cast. Here we go: Ali Jackson, drums; Carlos Enriquez, Enriquez, bass; Dan Nimmer, piano; and Sofia Nezevic. That's I'm hoping I get that right. It's K N E Z E V I C. And that is, uh, I, she does vocals, she's the singer. and I think she's also yeah. married to him, and in the folder uh-huh. to the CD, she is hugely pregnant, so I'm hoping they've had a wonderful experience with that, and the baby's either here or right on its way. I don't know when that photo was taken, but it, it looked ready to come into the world soon. And then there were some guest spots, right? Yeah, um, let's see, it just said some very special guests. Nice suit. So on uh, the jazz.org, you think he's got, um, he's wearing a shiny blue suit with pink socks. I approve this outfit. So he also plays bass trumpet. I don't know if he plays it here. And the special guests are... Well, Tim Haggins is on... Okay, so Tim Haggins is on Caravan. And Joe Lovano duets with him Ah. on Then There Were Less Than Three and also appears on Resolution. Gotcha. And this is an album that has some originals and then uh, strong nods to Duke Ellington and John Coltrane. Yes. So, first of all, I liked it a little better than Mar. Major props for... So if you're a trombonist and you're going to cover Caravan, Caravan is for the trombone player what Body and Soul is for the tenor saxophonist. It is, it is the signature song. So if you're going to record Caravan, 
you got to bring your A game, and you have to make it new. And I think L.A. Mason does a great job on that song. I actually like it. He does two things on it that I really like. One is he plays it almost as sort of a, as a boozy afterthought. You know, the trombone with all of its slurring can 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 have some really wonderfully comic effects. And his version of Caravan is this sort of blah 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 blah. It's very. It sounds like a drunk guy walking down the street. I don't know if that was the intent. I mean, that's just that's the image that I had in my mind. It's got this sort of breezy insouciance uh, to it, and also it has. Uh, another smart thing he does in that song is, since it's such a memorable song, anyone who has any connection to jazz will recognize it almost instantly. As he plays some of the choruses, he plays some of the verses, he'll do these sort of stop time things, these sort of pauses, you know, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da, you know, and it's like, you know what comes next, and the pause is a way of, you know, catching your attention. I think it's a great rendition of that song. I actually enjoy it quite a bit. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not definitive or anything. Just the point is, he took a song that is very well known on his instrument and did a recording of it that is fresh. Major props. I think that's a really good job. I thought that was fantastic. I like Resolution a lot. Right. Um, it might be my favorite number here. Partly that's Lovano, I guess. But uh, it builds, it has that kind of Coltrane spiritual intensity to it. I, I kind of like it. The other stuff on the album was okay, but those were the two numbers that really kind of jumped out at me, Resolution and, and Caravan. And Caravan it just puts a smile on my face every time it comes up on the rotation. I just think it's cool. I like it a lot. He is a very skilled player. He doesn't have quite the full Ray Anderson bag of tricks, but he's pretty fucking close. You know, he's got all the little slurs and burps and burrs and he's pretty fast so he's a virtuoso on this instrument and he's he's good to listen to i i, I like him quite a bit i i do think i would listen to his next release just on the strength of this one given how virtuoso some of the playing is here i hope you liked it pretty well too because i i thought this was a, a, a maybe a cut above the, the mar album just in terms of distinction and uh, and having you know kind of standout voice on his instrument. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I this definitely. I, I think when I asked to put it in the rotation, I was not that familiar with it, but my subconscious was saying, "Well, this is better than you think it might be, Patrick." You know, I had not had time to absorb it and listen to it repeatedly, but thought, "Well, there's something here." I really like the duet. I guess there's a drum on it, so it's not really a duet, but the. Uh, Right. interaction with Joe Lovano. And of course, at the time, I didn't know who that was, and I should have. But the minute I mm. heard it, and then heard he was also in Resolution, you know, this is some of the, it's Joe on a good day. I mean, there are times that Joe is, mm -hmm. you know, not, for me, the most gripping improviser. 
He's more... He, he, he can be a little lazy, maybe it's too strong a word, but um, comfortable. Yeah, well, he's got this kind of sinuous, slightly off, you know, he's in the sense of the school of Paul Gonzalez, more out, but that kind of slightly mush-mouthed delivery where every note is not a pearl, it's kind of <laughs> merging with every other note. And at his best, you know, like Rush Hour or whatever, which I just think is a masterpiece, he's fantastic. But there's a Sinatra tribute that I really like him on. But yeah, there are times where I feel like he's playing at a very high level, but he's not necessarily connecting with me emotionally. He's not that compelling. He's just very, very good. And here, in both cases, he's good. I think the trombone player is fantastic. Yeah, he is not of the Jimmy Nepper kind of slightly hazy focus romantic school. He is... Articulate, forceful, very technically secure. I think he's got enough effects and expressive devices that he doesn't seem to be just mechanically pumping out notes. I really appreciate the fact he's not one of these trombone players who plays fast but blurry. I mean, I right. just hate that. I just feel like, okay, you just made a cloud of sound, but it doesn't it doesn't really do anything. It's, it's just, you know, and, and that's not what he's doing. I think when I think of that, I think like of the uh, the brass on Chicago albums, which you know is very powerful, but <laughs> sometimes a little. It's just like you said, kind of a, a nice pillowy, powerful cloud of sound. And yeah, you're right. He does articulate uh, really nicely at speed, uh, which is impressive. Well, and just some trombone players soloing, they play so fast that the listener, because of the the low pitch of the tones they're making, just can't pick out what they're doing. So, yeah, I, I like this album quite a bit. I, I think that the vocals, I, I think overall in the world of jazz vocals and vocalese, I like them fine. Uh, I've been much less fond of vocals on many jazz albums. That said, probably if I was a dictator of this record and was not in love with either the trombone player or the vocalist, uh, I might have had one or two fewer appearances there. I don't know. I, the lyrics, you know, when, when it's the self-pen stuff, they're fine. Again, no one, Cole Porter's not scared kind of stuff. I mean, so often it's these vague positivity bromides that, you know, again, they're completely inoffensive. There's nothing said that I disagree with or dislike or I'm upset by. It's just verbally as a construct, they're not all that compelling. Now, she does, when she's doing the standard, sometimes play a little around with uh, the order of the lines, and that's kind of cool. I think the vocalese with the trombone player is neat, but him interacting with her vocal lines versus him interacting with Jill Lovano, I'm I'm just personally more excited by the latter, which is maybe asking a lot of any vocalists compete with Jill Lovano on a good day. That's maybe too much. But, you know, she's not pitchy. I, I don't think she, I think she's got the right kind of dreamy sound. It, it's almost like a third branch here. I mean, you've got, I feel like he's playing props to kind of pre-war jazz with the Ellington stuff. He's playing props to kind of modal jazz with, the Coltrane tune and then Passion Dance, which is a McCoy Tyner tune that he played with Joe Henderson. Henderson pops up again, which, you know, is kind of a, I don't know, I think of, of the school of Coltrane, my God, it's another modal tune. And I mean, to some degree, Tyner helped create that mode. I'm not saying it's purely out of Coltrane's head. So, I mean, those are the two tunes that remind me of that branch. And then there's these kind of more floating, I don't know, optimistic softer jazz numbers and those are probably for me the least interesting branch he never gets he's this is not an out player this is not somebody who's 
trying to break out of the tradition. He doesn't seem to be somebody interested in, you know, rap, rock or rap beats. This is a jazz album, but I think it's got a lot of personality. I think he's a really good player. I mean, somebody who made me sit up and pay attention. And I'm also excited just to hear a trombone player. You know, I just, it, we need more, yeah. you know, there's a paucity right now. I thought, I thought, I really thought he reminded, he reminded me a lot of Ray Anderson, but without Ray, he's got Ray Anderson's skill set almost. Anderson can still do some other things that are just ungodly on the on the trombone and perhaps illegal in some states <laughs> but uh he's got that same very broad skill set of being able to do really interesting things on the horn just slightly less puckish you know right. uh, ray anderson just is irrepressible we've talked about cats and dogs he's a dog he's humping your leg and uh, elliot mason is is he serves the tune a little bit more than ray anderson does on one of his really energetic days ray anderson is all about the performance and Mason, like in, in a sentimental mood, he's actually serving Ellington there as opposed to his own, making a feast of it for his own purposes, which I kind of appreciate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there is a broad comic streak in Ray Anderson. And, you know, there's certainly some humor. This doesn't seem to be too straight laced. Right. But, yeah, Elliot is not somebody who's going to, you know, kind of paint with those real broad strokes. And, and yeah, I, I don't know that I've got from this record i feel like i do have compass points but to yeah. know where he's coming from aesthetically i need a couple more observations another couple records to say okay how important is coltrane and ellington to you is there a third party you know maybe a little stronger sense of your own compositions just some sense of who is elliot aesthetically what, what does he care about what kind of world is he trying to take me to uh, I think it's a largely straight-ahead world, but one that at least acknowledges modal jazz, which I guess maybe because he's a trombone player seems a little more progressive than it would with a saxophone player somehow. I, and I can't explain or defend that, but I like it. I like him. I, I think this is a good album. I think this is a place where you get a lot of mileage from the guest appearances. So, yeah, I, I recommend it a lot. I, th- I think it's a good record. And again, if you're looking for a trombone player to listen to, he seems like a hopeful guy. I it just I want someone else to design his record covers. Uh, as soon as possible. Maybe pick his wardrobe, mm. but you know, nothing wrong with pink socks. Hey, I like that. I think that outfit is cool. I just, I'm like, you know, he, he just owns it. It's cool. It's a good look. No, absolutely. He's not. I don't. I think he's his own stylist, and God bless him for it. And yeah, you know, I'm waiting to see you in that in that ensemble the minute I get back to San Diego. So. Oh no no no! I don't have that. I'm, that's not me. But he he can work it. <laughs> there you go. Work it, work it, work it. All right. So what do you want to do next? Let's do Aaron Aranita. Okay. What a fun name. It is. And uh, so this is his big band. It sounds like a song. The name sounds like a song. Aaron Aranita. <laughs> and it's a, this is a big band album, which is, as we all yes. know, a tricky proposition in this day and age. It to sure put one is. together uh, with Brent Fisher's orchestra. And again, Brent is son of Claire Fisher. I have a Claire Fisher LP somewhere back home. I didn't get that digitized. I feel like there was some other release of his that kind of 
had a prominent reissue five, ten years ago, and that's where I heard that name. He's not a name I, I've i explored a lot. I want to say he was based on the West Coast. Sounds right. These are all West Coast Well, positions. I mean, now too, right. LA. Yeah, uh, but but right. the father. So anyway, what do you think of this one? I like this. You know, and maybe the reason I like it is just it's really well done, big band jazz. It has a really full, lush sound. It's it's mostly up-tempo stuff, and I just enjoyed the hell out of this. I just thought it was a lot of fun to listen to. Here, I, I guess Aranita only plays really on one song, or at least only takes front and center. He does the soprano saxophone solo on um, Epifanio, which is fine. Okay. So this is really him as a ranger. So when I'm sort of approaching it from that level, I like these arrangements. I like the, um, especially like the writing for the, the brass, the low, the low brass here. It's really rich, round sound under the sort of underpins, the soloing, not just for the reeds. There's some good, uh, there's some good trumpet soloing here too, but it's just this really pillowy, soft, I don't know, a very comfortable arrangement, but not, when I say that, I don't mean it to sound like it's sleep-inducing or dull. I just sort of feel like this guy is really good at writing for a big band jazz orchestra, and the arrangements don't strike me as boring or dull. They just seem ultra-competent, and I don't know, I just, uh, I feel like I'm running out of vocabulary to say what I like about this. It's not all the numbers. Not everything is super up-tempo, right? It's mostly up-tempo, but Segunda Vista, the title cut, is pretty mellow. It's, it's mostly soprano saxophone soloing over the arrangement for the rest of the band, but I just love the kind of foundation that he gets from this orchestra as a kind of bed on which these solos can occur. I just really like it. I don't know. Did you like it? Uh, maybe if you talk a little, I can be more articulate about what it is that strikes me as interesting here. I'm just not sure I'm saying it well. Okay. I had mixed feelings about this. I, I did like stretches of it quite a bit. Some of the writing, the lusher stuff with kind of the trilling flutes reminds me a bit of like, a little bit like if you think of Paul Desmond's From the Hot Afternoon, where it's mm. it's not elevator music because it's a little bit too exotic and exciting and eccentric isn't the right word is it, but but it is almost rococo you know it's it's stylized to a degree that seems self-aware and it's almost exciting and in in, again it's it's self-awareness and and deep commitment to stylization rather than being kind of workmanlike and straight ahead you know we're just going to do a generic brazilian number out of the box yeah i think a lot of the arrangements are really good i think a couple things struck me. One, for the most part, these soloists are good. Yeah. I don't know that the tenor player kind of lights a fire on what is probably my favorite number, Sierra Leone.
that that number's pretty punchy, and he kind of takes it up a bit a notch there and gets a little impassioned, and that really ignites things a bit. For the most part, I, I think the soloing is good, but I think in a project like this, I'd like a little better than good. That seems fair. I, I think I'd agree with that. The, the solos aren't particularly... I mean, the one that stuck out for me really was, and then I was happy to discover it, was the arranger himself was the soprano solo on Epiphania. That's the one that kind of stuck out for me. The other solos here, they're good, like you said, but no one really blows me away where I say, oh, I've got to hear that again. You yeah. know, I didn't notice the, the tenor solo on Sierra Leone as much as you did. Yeah, this one I felt like I really had to just put the headphones on, go out walking, and just listen to it. I think especially with a big band. It sounds great. It, I mean, it the does. Well, for the most part. And yeah. There, see, there's another issue that I think that it's it's very good for the most part. I, I, I think at once or so, the engineer loses track of the flutes, and they kind of get a little bit muddled and then buried back there. And there's maybe a little thickness to the sound. But again, this is a really difficult thing to do. Not only to get a big band together and rehearsed, but then to record them. I mean, it's just in terms of the the resources you need, the room, the microphones, the engineering time, the degree of difficulty, which as compared to like a quartet or something is just, it's just greater. And so I think it was a very good job. To me, it sounds like, it sounds to me like they're recording all of them in one large venue because there's an echo on almost everything, which I kind of liked. Um, I didn't know if that was... I thought they were all in one big room. That's it had this kind of sound to it, it's, not as if right. everyone's you know in separate rooms or something, which gave it a little more feel like a live recording. Right, not uh, not close to mine. I kind of like that. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, I, I think mo. I, I really don't know. I, I don't know enough. And of course, you can always add echo and post. And I have no idea how they how they did it. But I, I just as I said at one point in one of the arrangements. The balance goes a little south, but I mean, again, that's a couple minutes out of 40. I like the fact that it was 40, you know, that I think that may partially yep. reflect the fact that it's just too fucking expensive to make a 70 minute big band album, unless you've really got money coming out of your ears, because again, all those factors come into play, paying all the musicians, the studio time, etc. I did not like the fact that the intonation on the title track was problematic. There are some just sour-sounding notes and ensembles on Segunda Vista song. Now, I was that you know once I'm thinking I was listening to it, thinking, okay, I'm not going to make it to this record. I don't want to listen to this record. This is upsetting me. When I listen to the whole thing, I think that's really the only one. There are hints of just a little discomfort in the brass from time to time, but nothing major. But that song, I don't know. I, either he's just playing, having the band play such sophisticated chords that it went over my head. But I think there they needed another take, and they may not have been able to afford it. And it is one of the things where I'm thinking. You know, how much is that? Is the Sierra Leone really my favorite song? And then I'll be, I've just got in the background and my ears break up. Oh, that's the one. Is this the one with a problematic intonation? Again, I'm playing Golf Story with a mix of music on the speakers, and all of a sudden I start getting this lemony taste in my mouth. Yep, that's the one. That's the one with the problem. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that, yeah, that that's the one that there's a problem with. And that, I, to me anyway, I wish that song had been redone. I, I, it's not like it's a train wreck or something, or it's it's you know doesn't sound professional or whatever, but it's sour enough there. But that said, he's doing something that is a degree of difficulty greater than any of these other projects, which is getting a room full of people and you know hurting those cats and getting this stuff together. And I think as an arranger, I, I like most of it. I one of the tunes, bells, I think 
is maybe slightly busy. That's kind of a completely uh, judgment call, maybe a little noty. They may have been kind of pushing the the technical abilities of the band, but better that than than just too straight ahead and dull, right? And then mm. final track. It's on the edge of schmaltz to me, and I think the trumpet player needed to be even schmaltzier to milk it. I mean, again, that's the same problem where these are fine players, but they aren't owning it quite yet. They aren't just saying, okay, you're mine now, bitch, for the next 30 seconds. (laughs) And you really, that's what you want players to do, or to just, I'm the Nick Drake of the flute, and I'm going to just sob softly into your teacup. I mean, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be aggressive, but just, I'm going to create an emotional space that strikes you whatever it would be, rather than I'm going to competently play a track over these chords. Yeah, I think I liked it a little bit better than you did. Yeah. Some of the things you don't like, I kind of liked. So okay. The, um, the, the the sourness that you detected on the title cut, I kind of liked. It reminded me of Ellington's yeah. sour writing sometimes. You know. And this is uh, what I... And again, I, I didn't get a chance to put the giant Mar- Marvin the Martian headphones on. I just ran out of time. But yeah, I mean... Maybe that because it's it's good but not pristine recording that I'm having a little trouble deciding is that just plain intonation or are they doing something that I can't quite read because I can't quite hear it as clearly as I'd like. I, but, you know, I, again, it's this is a good record, and, you know, the Smaltzy final track, the nice thing about it is you know the song, the album is ending. I mean, it very definitely... <laughs> well, you do. I mean, it, it tells you emotionally, this is it. It's shorter than the rest of the tunes. It, it's closing the book. Uh, you know, I was um, we went to a performance by a high school group, a really amazing high school orchestra in Malmo this afternoon, and how do you say, is it is it Mahler or Mahler? How do you say that? Mahler. Mahler. So they played his first symphony, Titan. And, mm. you know, that's a 40-minute epic with eight French horns. I mean, it was just, you know, they had, I don't know, a lot of kids on the stage. And they did really, really good. Uh, it was a difficult performance. Woody Allen was in the front row. He's trying to get a date with the first violin player. Now oh, that fell flat. Was he really in the was he really there? <laughs> Can you imagine? Hey, babe. I don't know. You say random shit. I don't know if that's true or not. Anyway, one thing about that symphony is it keeps fucking ending. I mean, it's like, climax! Right. Uh, climax! Let me it's like, okay, and I'm sure once I've learned it inside and out, I'll know that he's going to fake me out three times before we finally get to the end there. Uh, this album's not like that. I mean, it's 40 minutes. It tells a story. It's got an arc. And that's really good. That, to me, is it's important as an old guy who likes albums. I mean, I know that. If you're young enough, you just don't think that way anymore. Anyway, so I like that about it. But yeah, I, I liked it. It's just there's a couple niggling things about it. But again, fine record. I mean, none of these are, are you know anything but good or better than good. You know, there there be no weak recordings here. All right, anything else you want to say about Segunda Vista? Nah. Okay.
All right. So Strengths Effect actually was an album that I got and immediately said, boy, this is really striking. I'm, I actually want to review this. I've got something to say about it. So I did put up a review on All About Jazz, but then you heard it and said, you know what? I want to talk about this. So clearly both of us were struck by this effort by two musicians, a soprano saxophone player and a trombonist. They have their own website. It's swingseffect.com. So the trombone player is Naomi Siegel. Yep. And then the soprano player is Kate Olson. And when I put the review together, if you have a promotion person, you put their email on it so they know that you reviewed it. And he said, okay, well, you know, we want to use this, but there's some spelling errors in there. Can you correct them? And I'd like, I put an extra I in Strings Effect somewhere and gotten vowel switched once with Naomi Siegel's last name. I just, it was typos. And I said, fine. And then he said, and throughout, you've misspelled Olson. You spelled it O-L-S-E-N, but it's O-L-S-O-N. And that's when I told him, well, I'd actually spelled it O-L-S-O-N. It's kind of the way I seem to be spelled. But then I looked at the promotional material included, and it's spelled O-L-S-E-N in the promotional material. Except once I read it carefully, one place it was oh, and then he told me, well, they put it together. <laughs> so anyway, you know, this is a problem with young artists out there is they have to type their own promos and sometimes they misspell their own names. But I thought it was kind of fun. <laughs> but it's this is very distinctive, right? This is the least straight ahead jazz of these records. Two instrumentalists, occasionally the producer will play percussion, but they also double track themselves and use a certain number of effects boxes and it's just a you know it's just a different kind of concoction than a typical straight ahead jazz album so what do you think of a sky you could strike a match on which is a great title great title love this album we'll listen to anything by these two people i thought this was fantastic just endlessly inventive and original and even on songs that start in a way that irritates me always find a way to get my attention. So, for example, the Bank Robber song. It starts out with the sort of you know, it's sort of like Keystone Cops or something. And then it resolves into this sort of melodic, lugubrious theme. And then it switches back to the Keystone Cops bit. Keystone Cops bit that much, but I like when it changes tempo. I think that's fantastic. And that happens a couple times on this album where a song starts in a way that I'm like, what the hell? There's one song, which one is it? One song starts, I'm trying to find it now. It reminds me of one of those Steve Lacey albums where you want to scratch your eyes out. <laughs> you remember the Steve Lacey albums like Chirps? or squirts or squiggles or something where it's one of his annoying soprano albums that are pretty close to noise so one of the songs here starts like that it starts with some soprano irritation but then it immediately resolves into this gorgeous melody and i can't remember which one it is it might be obligations although that starts with the um that starts with the trombone doing a oopa 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 so 
not quite sure. Um, it's one of the songs had this weird beginning, and I'm like, really? What am I listening to? But then it turns into something else. I love the multi-tracking. I love the fact that they they don't even care. Like, there's no fear that jazz purist is going to come along and yell at them. They're just doing what they want to do. I just think this is a fantastically inventive album and always interesting. None of the songs here are boring to me. Like I said, there are parts of them that I don't like, but then there's always something in every song that I end up liking. So that's kind of striking to me. Usually there'll be something in a song and I'll be like, oh, this is awful. You just have to wait for it to finish. But these change up. The songs themselves are only about five minutes long each, and they have different sort of moods in them. There's lots of intermingling lines between the the multi-track trombones and the multi-tracked sopranos. And it's a good sound. I like those two instruments together a lot. There should be more of this. We've heard this. We actually reviewed an album, Roswell Rudd and Steve Lacey. There's another trombone-soprano pairing. Something about these two sounds works really well together. The sort of astringentness of the soprano against the ripe fruitiness of the trombone. They go really well together, which, you know, seems counterintuitive. I, I just like this a lot. Say some stuff and I'll probably jump back in here. I think this is really, really good. And I think that they are good improvisers. I enjoy their improvised lines. That's not the only focus of the record. I mean, when they step up to the plate, they do great. I enjoy them. But they're also kind of composer conceptualists here and that combination. And it may be that, you know, their producer is the third Beatle kind of thing. I don't know. But uh, I'm not because I think they are creative. I just don't know how the album was put together. But whatever the alchemy was, they came up with a really good 49 minutes. And again, we cannot stress enough as we stare death in the face, ever coming closer. Your best 50 minutes is a lot more use to a listener than your second best 80 minutes uh <laughs> just it's, thank you you know anytime you can kind of focus on your strongest stuff in a recording and not just give more for the sake of more it's a good thing and it seems counterintuitive right i mean they used to be that was especially when compact disc came out it was always stick something else extra make it longer because it can go longer than a record but i i think overall I, I just don't think it's true i think it's better to give your best stuff so yeah, this this record has a lot of different moods. There's some comedy stuff on there, as you said. I mean, Super Soaker's got that kind of really old school kind of rap beats that are almost comically tinny, and then it turns into a really cool song. actually get out song for dead sparrows i mean there's where you get some really out and uh, extended playing from them and at the same time even on that song there's a trombone ostinato that's kind of anchoring it, it's keeping it from just being pure sound redwood cries i think is interesting because it sounds almost like i don't know parlor music not in a bad sense but kind of like light classical rather than jazz or pop <laughs> Thank you. 
But I think the secret is they both have good ears for melody, and so the songs actually have distinctive personalities. And then they're also really good at building these uh, cathedrals of sound, right? They layer really well. They know how to build to a climax, how to arrange a song so it goes somewhere with the, you know, the piled on lines. For some reason, I'm reminded a little bit, maybe also just the sound of the album of like Laurie Anderson's Big Science. Not that there is a, they're using the same methods as her at all. Obviously, there's no spoken word. It's not as avant-garde, but just that kind of sense of building from cells and layering them. So they really know, I mean, that's almost more of a pop ability than it is a jazz one to know, okay, I'm going to take a two chord vamp and kind of build something on it that, that sustains interest over time by bringing voices in or taking voices out or whatever. But they really got it. I mean, they, they're not just trying to do it. They do it. So, yeah, I, I just think it's a really good album. It's very distinctive. As I said, this was the one that I played once. And I'm like, I want to write about this. This interests me immediately. Uh, I've enjoyed all these records. But, again, so many very, very good jazz albums you can listen to. And then, you know, you don't necessarily – you said that was good. But you're not sure you're going to desperately seek out the, you know, the artist's next release. You're not sure you've got more to say about it than that. It's just kind of this was another fine jazz album. This one is very distinctive. So, yeah, I, I you know, think it's think it's a great uh, group. And, uh, you know, I think the whole package is there. It's, their, their titles are even good. If you want to go superficial, the art's good. And again, it's 50 minutes instead of 100 or 70. So I liked it a lot. And they're good players. Do you want to say something about the multi-tracking? Because that is the third rail for a lot of jazz listeners. Well, you know, in the review, I bring it up and. I guess to me, one is that don't go into this thinking it is a showcase of improvisation and nothing else. If that's really what you're looking for, the the undoctored acoustic event, then you're not going to get it. That's not what they're trying to do. I think at some level, I think for me, both soprano and trombone, I love them. I don't think they had the last micron of expressivity that alto or tenor saxophone do or that trumpet do. They're just a little less flexible. And in a way that I feel like they don't need that pure acoustic event as much. Maybe, you know, in other words, they can they can expre- express themselves almost better with these tools than most players on those instruments can just acoustically. And that's, you know, there are obviously exceptions. I mean, Jimmy Nepper I listen to all fucking day. The great soprano players, whether it's Steve Lacey on a good day, Johnny Hodges. Coltrane, but it's just a little harder, I think. But yeah, and I think the important thing is, is that this is multi-track music, but it's good. I mean, it, it works. You know? Right. I mean, what else are you going to say about it? It's. But if you don't, if you don't like that, if you don't like studio trickery, run because this album's full of it. Yeah, it's not trying to give you the undoctored acoustic event, which you know, right. no album really finally does, and you wouldn't like it if you got it. But that's kind of the rhetoric of jazz recording. Cool. Yeah, definitely my favorite release here. For yeah, sure. strong recommendation. But all these are good. All these are worthy. I, I and this is one reason I, I hope someday we can get the uh, the, the gentleman that, that works for this organization, or he may be the organization. To me, the problem is one of there being so much, and it's not a, necessarily a problem, but just literally there are not enough hours in the day to listen to all the good music being made, and so it, it's overwhelming. You feel guilty. It's like four more records. They're all good. All people I had not heard of. And there's four more behind that and four more behind, you know, I mean, it's, and not every one of them is as good as these four, but 
there's a lot of really great music out there. And I, I almost wonder at some point, are you just going to have local fans that if you live in the area, I think it's Portland, I'm not sure, or Strengths Effect is you're going to look them up. Or, you know, if you can go see Brent Fisher's big band, go see him. But if you're somebody who actually buys recordings, maybe you're not going to have a big collection of that. But, you know, there's somebody that you just follows a homer. I don't know. Like endless rain into a paper cup They slither wildly as they slip away Across the universe Pools of sorrow, waves of joy Are drifting through my opened mind Possessing and caressing me So, do you have any pop matters on your mind? Nope. You go. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I've been accumulating a lot of stuff, and I want to spread it out as I can, but today is a Beatles special. Are you ready for a Beatles special? I am ready. Okay. So the first thing I ran across, I was in a used record store in Malmer, and got a couple of Brian Ferry albums I didn't know before. That was exciting. And picked up Let It Be Naked. I own it. Okay. And, I, you know, so yeah, Let It Be for me is in the bottom third of Beatles albums. It's, you know, listening to it again recently, I thought, yeah, there's still some moments here that move me. It's not their best effort, in my opinion, by a long shot. But let's hear it without the sweetening. So I did, and you know, it's these same tracks without the sweetening. I, I don't know that it was revelatory. It's certainly not that experience I had with the Tusk alternate takes that I kept raving about where I like that version almost better than the original. At least it's its own experience and love it to death. It's, you know, they're okay. Did it make much of an impression on you when you listen to it? I think I prefer Let It Be schmaltzed up. Yeah. Uh, I, I like both, but I think what makes Let It Be special is some of the schmaltz, since it is a sort of valedictory note, then ending it with then adding the the George Martin touches actually kind of makes a lot of sense to oh, me. Oh, but 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 actually though those aren't George Martin touches. It's uh, it's just Paul. Well, no, my point is that the the producer on Let It Be was Specter, Phil Specter. Ah, so interesting. It is a different thumbprint than Mr. Martin, who at that point I guess you know there was that sense of everything disintegrating as, as the '70s approached, slouching towards Bethlehem. And this is the album that they completed, decided they didn't want it to be their last testament, went into the studio, did Abbey Road, though Abbey Road came out earlier. <laughs> so, you know, you can look at is is Let It Be their last album? Well, it was chronologically, but it's their last statement was probably Abbey Road. But but anyway. Now, where are you getting that Phil Spector? Sorry. Okay, now I do see that he's a producer. Because um, I, I was looking at something, and it says that George Martin did produce, uh, produce it. So I assume... Hmm. I assume he produced some of it. He, I don't know. I mean, what I'm aware of is that, that Paul McCartney was upset that Phil Spector put on. I mean, this project was a mess, right? It, it was, you yeah. know, they, they were going to make a film and they fought and all the rest, you know. No, it's a clusterfuck from the from the beginning. I mean, in fact, I think, and I have not listened to it. I may never listen to it. There's a second CD in this set that is all studio chatter. And then there's oh, a boy. transcription of the studio chatter on the booklet. But, you know, it was a... Uh, 60 or 50 uh, krona. It was a reasonable price. So I got it. I've got to admit, it's getting better. Better, little better. 
then I did succumb, probably shouldn't have, in honor of the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's. The son of George Martin, Giles or Giles Martin, has produced a new stereo mix of the album. Really? Really. Yeah. And is it on vinyl? Did you get it on vinyl or what? Well, it would be kind of useless to me here, so I did not. The interesting point about music sales now, what little remains, a few music stores, I went in there, there's no new CDs whatsoever. But if I wanted the new vinyl copy of that Sgt. Pepper's remix, I could have picked it right up. So I got this as a download from a, a site. But in other words, you, you can buy new vinyl in many record stores now, but the new CDs are pretty much, you've got to be online if you're going to get them. Yeah, and the idea was, is that it's been long established that for Sgt. Pepper's and some of the earlier records, the Beatles would stay for the mono mixes. That's what they considered important. But the stereo mixes they didn't really oversee very thoroughly, and they pretended to be done quickly because at that time they did not see the importance of the stereo market, right? It was mainly kids listening to their music, and the stereo was not widely uh, disseminated toward, towards the end of the 60s. So a lot of people say, well, the mono is the official version, and the stereo is too wild. And so they took a shot at remastering. And once here, I think they went back to original elements, I'm sure spent thousands of pounds and have made them back quintupled. And they released this with a album of alternate takes that I haven't even listened to yet. I said the main thing for this is that it is a different sounding mix. I think it happened with the stereo mixes of the White Album. Sometimes if you hear things too clearly in this kind of pop music, it almost takes the magic away because you can start hearing the patchwork. I, you know, it's the yeah. best I can describe it. And they emphasize the bass and they emphasize the drumming a bit. The theory being those are the Beatles who are still living. <laughs> hmm. And boy, Sergeant Pepper's not Ringo Starr's finest moment. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it's, and I can't blame him. You know, I, you can imagine this album was this amazing production event with all these layers and all these experiments and time and slowing tape down and speeding it up. And I just don't think there was a sense of a band playing tunes on this very often. I mean, obviously the, the title track is an exception, but yeah, Ringo just sounds stiff as fuck. It's just kind of plodding on a lot of these very famous songs. And the new mix is a bit merciless about that. <laughs> it's like, okay, this really isn't doing him any favors. And, and you need to turn Paul McCartney's bass down a couple notches, which I love. I mean, I love Paul McCartney's bass. It's, it's melodic. Obviously, he's an amazing bass player. It's just that, like anything else, if it gets out of balance, it's like it took Viagra or something. Yeah, it's not revelatory. So the question I had in mind, I guess, for you was I asked you to think about, you know, what are your top five Beatles albums? Because I went looking online and found probably a dozen lists. And I'd say the majority of them, this is the number one. Where would it fall for you? Uh, White Album is number one for me. And then probably, and I'm this is me just being sentimental, probably my top three, top five in, in order, probably White Album number one, Let It Be number two. Sorry, not Let It Be, uh, Abbey Road, number two. And then, yeah, probably Sgt. Pepper's, especially for the Lennon songs, which are just unfucking forgettable And then uh, Revolver and Rubber Soul. Yeah, I, yeah. for me, I, I guess this is a pure collection of songs and performances. Oh, wait, I left out Yellow Submarine. Yes, you did. No, well, it's on Revolver. I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Crucial things. Everybody, you know, Beatles for Sale they're all tired i mean it's it's there's still amazing songs on that but it's kind of tired and spot yeah i mean they're, you know they're kind of the lungers i actually think that uh 
the Magical Mystery Tour, I don't know. I mean, like that better than Sgt. Pepper's. I, you know, now, mm. Blue Jay Way is full of crap, but then really within without you, is it that much deeper? Finally, really, George? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if this one even would make my top five. It, it For me, it's just in terms of peerless songs, I would go with Rubber Soul first. I know everybody mm. says it's Revolver, but to me, the mistake you're making there is Revolver is the entry into psychedelia. It's the entry into more avant-garde production. I'm just going to say that song for song, it's not as strong an album as Rubber Soul. I mean, I get that it's more innovative, that it's more dramatic, that it's more influential. Absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're going to judge them that way, obviously Sgt. Pepper's is probably first. You know, it, it started a revolution. What does it mean to make an album in the studio in a way that Pet Sounds just didn't for anybody but Paul McCartney and a few other people? I, I think I'd probably put that first. You know, I... Abbey Road's got a couple really annoying songs, but a lot of it's brilliant. White Album, there's a lot of crap on that album, but yeah, I think White Album is just because it's you feel like it's the most human, personal, idiosyncratic thing they ever did. It's it's kind of hard to resist on those grounds. On the other hand, it has Revolution Number Nine, so I, I'd probably be something like Rubber Soul, Revolver, probably White Album, though that is indefensible in certain ways. And after that, I don't know, Abbey Road. I mean, at some point, I'm I'm asking myself, do I like the soundtrack to help or what's the first soundtrack? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hard Day's Hard Night. Hard Day's Night. Yeah. I mean, those, I, you know, so I, I mean, I, I like Sergeant Peppers is, is amazing. I, I think the thing is my sister played that album all the time when I was growing up and what gets under my skin is I swear to God, Sergeant Peppers is the moment you can hear John Lennon start to hate Paul McCartney. And it's almost fucking harmonies. I mean, the harmonies to She's Leaving Home, he just, he is just whining them out. I mean, there is a kind of sarcasm. It's almost nasty. If you listen to him, there's just kind of an edge. And it's an amazing tune. I mean, I don't really give a fuck about 60s kids learning to have fun. I mean, fuck that. Whatever. Okay. My parents were so uptight. They went through World War II, but I didn't. It's like, fine. Whatever. But, you know, it's a song. It's amazing. But, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, it's music. I, I don't find Sgt. Pepper's that great. I, I, it's still amazing. I mean, it's Beatles. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a fucking amazing album. But I don't know if it's in my top five. Anyway, that's my little rant there. But then I really went, I went the extra mile. Jones was quizzical, studied pataphysical science in the home. Late night, all alone with a And I decided this was the day before I turned 52, I had to see, you know, they made a movie of Sgt. Pepper's Mike. No, I didn't know that. You really didn't know that they made a movie in the seventies. You know who Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band was Mike? Uh, isn't Peter Frampton involved? Yes. You know who else was in it? <laughs> I don't know. John Denver. <laughs> no, they couldn't get John Denver. The Bee Gees. The Bee Gees are the other three members. That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, That's my God. Right. So, yeah, I'd always kind of in the back of my mind knew this abomination existed. But for some reason, I decided, well, I've got to see it, by which I mean watch a hugely pixelated version on YouTube that someone uploaded. Mm. And Wow. You've got to see this someday. It's well, the one apparently one thing they realized early on is that Peter Frampton has a very tiny speaking voice. 
He's not, you just can't project. And Alice Cooper makes fun of him for this because you know who else is in the movie? Alice fucking Cooper's in the movie. Of course he is. So are Aerosmith. Aerosmith is in the movie. Steve Martin is in the movie. George Burns. George Burns narrates it because they realized they were going to make these four kids in the band from like, oh, I can't remember the name of the fucking town, everywhere or something, uh, you know, middle, middle world town, something. And in America, which of course is what we always associate with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, is, is an American group, right? And then they realized, oh yeah, the Bee Gees are from fucking Australia. They don't. <laughs> and so the total sum dialogue spoken by the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton in this movie is this. They don't say a fucking word. They never speak. <laughs> so it's narrated by George Burns, who also sings a song. And then they like go to Hollywood and get corrupted. But then the his evil band, which is, it turns out the great villains of this, of this movie are Aerosmith send some unknown British comedian to steal the four magical musical instruments and they have to steal them back. And one of the people with one of the instruments is Steve Martin, who plays a plastic surgeon and sings Maxwell silver hammer. Yes. And yes. you have not lived until you've seen Steve Martin butchering <laughs> Maxwell silver hammer in a way that just is, is unforgettable and unforgivable. On, on rate your music, you know, you can rate films there as well. And my favorite review of the film there, uh, my favorite review of the film there is by a user. And the first line of the review is, I saw a film today, oh boy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a positive review. <laughs> yeah, well, see, Joyce was gone for like three or four days in, in England. And so I'm like, I'm just going to watch some crappy horror movies. I'm going to look at this. And then I realized, okay, I've made it about an hour. I'm just going to have to scrub through the last 30 minutes. Like, where's that Aerosmith performance have come together? Okay. Well, you know, I just can't, I can't literally. Did you skip the earth, wind and fire? Part? Oh, I sure didn't. And that's the one, the one thing about this film that I like is it in this particular world, in this particular moment, blacks and whites are just together. They're just the musical styles. Lucy in the sky with diamonds and her backing group are all African-Americans. They have earth, wind and fire come at some point, his girlfriend, who, of course, is named Strawberry Fields, or maybe it's Penny Lane, I don't fucking remember, dies because she falls off a giant stack of money when they're defeating Aerosmith. And so they're all going to her funeral, and there's a magical weather vane on the top of the town hall of this little Midwestern town, and it comes to life, and it's Billy Preston, and he starts shooting cartoon thunderbolts out of his fingers and brings her back to life. He's the Deus Ex Machina of this film. And he has a grand old time. He sings one of the Beatles hits, and he's pretty good. I mean, he's... I acting i mean the whole concept of acting is just destroyed by this film there is you know after you've seen it you're like apparently human beings cannot imitate other human beings it just can't be done i mean it's all been a horrible lie but yeah the movie combines these cultures and it is kind of cool it's like yeah i I don't know that since that time it's just kind of hard to imagine a beatles tribute now that would be half african-american you know what i'm saying it's just it's just like that's that's gone that was one good thing about the 70s so anyway, this guy named Paul Nelson, a writer for Rolling Stone, who championed a lot of really major rock artists in the 70s, all of whom were white, mocks the production. You know, he said uh, Frampton had no future in Hollywood. The Schultz, the director, would seem to need direction merely to find the set little on the camera. But then this comment on the musical soundtrack, the, the album proves conclusively that you can't go home again in 1978, or if you do, you better be aware of who's taken over the neighborhood. 
I don't know that that was. Damn. I know, like, at least reading it now, that sounds fucking racist. Now, I, I don't know that that's how it was meant, but I'm like, shit, man, because I'm kind of happy with the people. I'd really rather hear Earth, Wind, and Fire play all these songs in the BGs. I gotta tell you, it's so much better. You know, I mean, their version of Got to Get You Into My Life is probably comparable with Paul McCartney's. You can't say most of these covers. Uh, the Bee Gees, they, they should have discofied it more. I mean, mainly when they and Frampton do stuff, it's like, well, that's sort of like the Beatles, but it sounds a little like the Bee Gees. You know, it's just kind of, there's no point to it. Anyway, it is, it's wow. I cannot recommend it, but you should at least see Steve Martin singing Maxwell Silver Hammer once in your life. You you shouldn't have skimmed over the end because the legend has it that in the final moments of the film, Paul and Linda McCartney and George Harrison are there in the finale during the Our Guests in Heartland. Number. Heartland, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, I did look at, you know, they, they, they assembled this huge crowd of people. And, of course, if you lived in the 70s, it's this amazing time machine where you're saying, why is that person there and who the fuck is that? Which I guess some people say is kind of a tribute to the cover of a horrible tribute to the cover of Sgt. Pepper. So it, it just the whole thing is just hugely misbegotten. Wow. And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 134. As always, you can reach us at mike at jazzbastard.com or pat at jazzbastard.com. You can leave a comment on our Facebook page or drop me a line at All About Jazz, where I do occasionally post reviews and opinion pieces, just in case you haven't had enough of me from this. You can download the podcast from www.jazzbastard.com or from Apple Podcasts, or if you choose, All About Jazz offers a monthly summary of the episodes, and you can listen to it there. Tune in next time as we focus on Louis Armstrong's DECA studio recordings from the period 1935 to 1939. It's four hours of varied, amazing, and befuddling music, and we'll talk about that music in depth as well as the usual round of pop matters and other issues. Till then, take care. Just the chair. Relax. You have very sensitive ears. When yeah. I listen to this on the recordings, I can barely hear it. Chill out. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, what do you think I'm doing a jazz podcast for? Yeah.
God, just chill. <laughs> if my fingers were more sensitive, this would be all about sculpture. So anyway, or something. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> let me let me tee it up for you there. Here, here here's the here's the club, Mike. Go for three hundred. You got it. 